Hi, and welcome to episode 76 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger, and I'm excited to get this episode to you today. My conversation with Tim Storia. He's one of Australia's most significant painters. His work comes from imagination and memory. Burning ropes in desert landscapes, portraits with not a figure in sight, green underwater scenes and those mood-filled skies with clouds that seem to go on forever. He was the youngest artist ever to win the Solman Prize at 19 years of age and has since won it a second time. He's also won the Archibald, the Doug Moran and the Archibald Packing Room Prize and his work is held in most Australian national and state art galleries and, of course, in private collections across the world. He's exhibited in dozens of solo shows, including a stunning survey show in 2011 at SH Irvine Gallery. He was a trustee of the Art Gallery of New South Wales for most of the 90s, and he's been awarded a member of the Order of Australia for Service to the Arts. But he's also known for being forthright and at times controversial, and I thoroughly enjoyed meeting him at his historic home in Barrel in the southern highlands of New South Wales. You'll get to see his spectacular home and studio in a few days on the Talking With Painters YouTube channel. We talk about finding one's voice, his friendships with John Olson and Brett Whiteley, and the immediate aftermath of Whiteley's death. He was the person the police called to identify Brett Whiteley's body as well as his views on the Archibald and postmodern art, which are not all positive, and a whole lot more. All the paintings we talk about are on the website talkingwithpainters.com. Tim was born in Sydney, but moved to the family property in country New South Wales near Wellington when he was four years of age. And we start this conversation with his memories of that time. When you're four, you walk into a rather modest country house and it, it's like walking into the Taj Mahal. <laughs> yeah. um, do you have a memory of actually going there for the first yeah. time? Oh, do you? Mm. Right. Uh, we, we arrived quite late and the, the house faced due west, which was odd really. Um, made the place pretty hot in summer, of course. Oh, yeah. But uh, no, the sunlight was uh, fading and it came right down the central hall of the old place. So it was all very exciting, but of course, as children, you accept everything. It was natural. And you had a twin. You have a twin sister. Yes. Yeah. Were you very close growing up? Well, no, not really, because she. Um, I remember the primary school teacher once said, uh, "Why can't you be more like your sister? She's really nice." You wouldn't <laughs> say that now, would you? That'd be prejudicial. But um, <laughs> no, she was. She was a real little goody two-shoes. Right, and you weren't. Well, I tried. I mean, but I just, I was too gawky and too silly, I think. I was a very late maturer. I was very small. Oh, yeah. Um, maybe that made me cranky. I'm not sure, but uh, we got on all right. Yeah, yeah, sure. And so I take it, well, because where you grew up before, well, in the early years of TV, I presume you wouldn't have had a TV when you... No, were... there was no television um, in the house. Right. Uh, ever. Um, were you a big reader? Uh, yes, comics. Oh, okay. Um, I was fascinated by comics, especially, um, you know, the, the Phantom, but um, Western comics. And, of course, in those days, The Lone Ranger, you could buy a book on The Lone Ranger. My father was always interested that I should buy a book. So I found a hardcover copy of The Lone Ranger, which had, I think, two pages of text. The rest were comics. Oh, yeah. Because I always showed him <laughs> a page of text. So were you drawing as a kid? Yeah. Well, my mother was a, um, what you would call a, probably a Sunday painter, I think. Um, there was a group of women, um, Miss Lane from the school and things like that, and they, they used to uh, draw and they used to make pottery. And they were, mm. they were of course, to me, uh, they were ancient people, you know, <laughs> boiling a frog half the time, you would suspect, but they... They were creative people. I'd have to say that in those districts in those days, which were, I mean, pretty macho, really, uh, mm. um, the idea of drawing and painting and things was, to those local people, um, pretty unmanlich. And I found that the, the women didn't think that at all. They were always very sympathetic. Towards uh, you, your work, you mean? Well, you what I was trying to do, yeah. yeah. What were you trying to do? I'll draw. Yeah. Yeah. 
What were you drawing? Watercolors. Oh, um, sheep, <laughs> landscape. I won the drawing prize at the Wellington Show a couple of times. So I, I was onto it. Yeah, mm. right. So it was an early interest for you. Very much, yeah. Mm. And in, in your recent book, there's a, a book came out last year called Tim Storia by Lou Klepak, and uh, you've contributed writings to that as well. And um, I think you, you talked about uh, going to boarding school, mm. and it sounded like a pretty homesick experience. Oh, it was terrible for me. I mean, I was... Um, well, you know, everybody's immature when they're that young, but I mean... Um, Were you 10 or 11 or something? or um, Nine, I think. Oh. Um, so I had a terrible time adjusted to the first year. I just couldn't believe where I was. I, I, um, my world... Um, and the, the world that, that, I, that I constructed for myself was not dissimilar to some of these paintings in the sense that it was a tremendous amount of fantasy involved with living on a station like that and there were all sorts of private nooks and crannies and cubby holes. And mm. I used to play a lot of uh, fantasy games, cowboys and Indians sort of games, you mm. know, um, with my dog. And all those things were uh, very vibrant to me. Mm. Um, so, so, the land, so the land and, and, and playing on the property was... Play was very important. I mean, an example would be... Uh, at some stage, and cinema was very important, curiously enough. I mean, I'd like to be able to say that I sat around reading Proust and <laughs> looking at Picasso. But, uh, I was spared both of those things, luckily. But um, the, uh, the, the cinema was quite important. I mean, I remember somebody, my mother took me to see Rain Tree County, which is an American Civil War picture, and it's a very, very beautiful picture, actually. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I then, uh, then of course, there's a scene in it where the, the boy, uh, is, one of the soldiers is carrying another soldier. So I went home and made a dummy by bobby pins and um, clo uh, clothes and stuffing them with newspaper. So, so I'm walking around with this dead-looking dummy over my shoulder. Oh, really? It completely freaked my mother out. The, the only reason <laughs> I mention it is because those types of things and the... the the landscapes in John Ford's westerns had a tremendous impact on me. I can still see it in these pictures that I sort of mm. fumble around with. So the, the flat desert landscape? Well, yes. I mean, he made some fantastic... Um, the Searchers is one, but... Uh, uh, and a lot of them were black and white in the early days. And these American landscapes, a lot of... Quite a few shot in Monument Valley, um, which is just an extraordinary landscape. They're quite romantic, those sort of... They are. Movies as well, aren't they? Mm. I presume they're not terribly violent, for example. No, no, the the uh, it's it's sort of rugby violence. You know, they yeah. tumble, they tumble, and, and in fact, in those westerns, I mean, it. Uh, I don't think it was until the Wild Bunch was made by Sam Peckinpah, which is an extremely violent thing. I mean, there's blood everywhere, that they changed it to into a raw sort of thing. Mm. But funnily enough. Um, the movies that are most accurate, the first movies that are most accurate about the West was actually made by Sergio Leone uh, in, uh, with Clint Eastwood, where they did a lot of research on what the clothes were like, you know. Mm. And they were nothing like those sort of rather gay-looking cowboys at yeah. all. <laughs> they, were, they were dusty, dirty travellers, you yes. know. Yes. Mm. So I found all that fascinating, and I still mm. do. Yeah. You know. Do you still... Uh, enjoy the movies, uh, like cinema? No. No? No. I find very difficult to watch most movies nowadays. So they've completely lost me. I don't understand it. And um, I fail to understand how any culture can survive by glorifying violence. I don't I mm. think there's a hope in hell of, uh, of succeeding with that going on. Mm. I, I know what you mean. I find it very hard to watch the, those movies. Because there's so much... Well, there's gun violence in nearly every movie. Even yeah. a comedy now. Yeah. But uh, well, we're talking about American movies, I suppose, more than other Yes, and the, 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 uh, the, the prurient way they go about explaining people's relationships, usually in bed. And um, I might have been interested once, I suppose, but at 70 years old, I'm not interested in that. <laughs> OK, so let's... All right, so let's go back to... Um, 
boarding school. So yeah. so you you were sent to boarding school when you were about nine or ten. Mm. Uh, I went you say to the, nine? The prep school. And, yeah. Um, so this was in Sydney. Yes, and the first year, I mean, where I remember. Where, see, the other thing about it was that um, where you you went down on a on a steam train. Oh. An, over, an overnight steam <laughs> really? train. Really? Yeah. From, so over the Blue Mountains? From Wellington, which is up near Dubbo. Yeah. And um, so it, was, it usually picked up about six or seven o'clock and you arrived in Sydney at six in the morning. Oh, so and, you were a little And kid. grubby. There's something mm. about those steam trains. You just, you, ha you were gritty, you know. And, um, mm. There were some older boys trying to look after me and uh, I couldn't even eat tea and toast in the uh, the big dining room at Central Station. I just I was a mess. Oh, mm. Anyway, um, yeah. it was a good thing, essentially. I mean, you know, uh, uh, got used to it. it yeah. You do you do learn some things. Uh, for instance, the one thing that you learn if you go to boarding school, I suppose it's a bit like a military boot camp in a sense. And in fact, they are based on that in those days. Um, you do learn how to get on with your fellows, mm. and it's a very, very good lesson. Uh, and you make good friends too, and um, you, you you toughen up a bit. Mm. And uh, that mm. whether it had happened there that way or some other way, it was going to happen. Yeah. Well, I think I understand that you had some great art teachers. I had a very good art teacher. It's quite extraordinary, really. A, a man called Ross Doig, mm. and. Um, they had a thing called special art, which was an elective thing that my mother paid for, so you could go and study art on Friday afternoon from three to six. Oh, yeah. And um, I used to look forward to that all week, yeah. you know. So you're in there. You're, he was a disciplinarian. He, he wasn't a, a, a free marketeer when it came to sort of what you can do. He prescribed what you could do. And it was all about a solid type of grounding. Mm, like what sort of thing? Oh, the, the, the very standard things like... Um, Composition, uh, colour theory, history of art, um, mm. sculpture. So, did he encourage you to go to art school? Was that how it worked? How, yes. Well, I mean, uh, he did. Um, in, in those institutions, in those days, it, it, it was regarded as a very risky course. Uh, if somebody uh, had um, artistic flair, to use a term. Um, they would usually try to channel them off into architecture, which was a profession. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, there would be, in those days, there would have been five or six artists in the whole of the country that could support themselves, I would imagine. Yeah. So what was the, so the idea was that you would go and do, I mean, because you, you, did you end up doing graphic, some sort of like I did, design? and the reason turned out to be a very good thing. Um, the graphic design course at East Sydney Tech, the first two years of it were the same as the painting course or the sculpture course. They also taught you modern reproduction techniques, um, uh, psychology, for God knows why they would do that. Um, <laughs> the, the use of a camera. Um, oh, yeah. So I, I, I learned a lot. I, I worked, um, I left early because they told me there's nothing more they could teach me. So I went and worked at the ABC for oh. 12 months. Um, and then I had a, de a desk at, as an illustrator at a, uh, an advertising agency in North Sydney. And what was that like? Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, I, was, I wasn't very good at it, though. You know, you've got to be engaged, and I wasn't really engaged. But they were decent people. They were nice to me and so forth. So, you, you know, just sturgeoning your way through somehow. Mm. So what happened was I got a bit of money together and um, went, went off to America. Mm. Um, it was like taking 12 months off and somebody said to me before I left, I'd never been out of Australia before, that you'll get so lonely you'll end up reading your passport on the end of a bar. <laughs> I travel on my own and uh, Jesus, was that oh, true? you travelled on your own? Mm. What made you think of doing it? You just wanted to... What, you, well, sounds they, like were, they were restless. all heading off to Britain. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, and yeah. I suppose because of the films and um, I was much more interested in, in, in America. Yeah, right. And, um, I still am, to a large degree. Um, as Robert Hughes said, you know, if he, was, if he was in Roman times, he would have wanted to be in Rome, so he went to New York. And there's some truth in that. It's a huge, powerful sort of thing, but uh, mm. not for me. Not for me. I don't have the temperament for it. It's too rough. Yeah. Mm.
So you were attracted to these large, dry, flat landscapes? Oh, yes, I um, had a look at all that, but it wasn't Australia, it was somewhere else, you know. Mm. But they still are magnificent places, unbelievable. Mm. But then you ended up, so you ended up in the south of France in a yeah. residency in Vence. Yes, yeah. well, um, that's when I... Which is not very dry. <laughs> no, no, but um, no, see, I, I don't work from life. I've always just worked from imagination, from mm. memory. So it doesn't matter where I work, really. I'd always come to the same conclusion. Now, that could be a very debilitating thing, but I'm not a see-and-put artist. I'm quite clever at it when I want to do it, but I, I, it, it, it actually doesn't, you know, intrigue me very much at all. But the people who do it, I admire them very much. Mm. I still do. I mean, look at Sargent. I mean, my God, what a talent, what a brilliant man. Yeah, incredible. So, but I don't work that way, so I just went into this little box and sort of started hacking away at something and um, then it started to come together at the beginning of it. And is that when, did you form the view back then that um, you were going to pursue life as a, as a painter? Oh yes. I don't know what would have ever happened to me. I was jackarooing when I heard on the ABC that I'd won the Sulman Prize. You heard it on the radio? Yeah, on the ABC. What, they didn't call you? No, didn't know where I was I suppose. Um, <laughs> No, this uh, jackaroo came in and said, gee, mate, what have you done, you know? I said, I don't know, what are you talking about? <laughs> he said, you're on the radio. Uh, so if that hadn't happened, I really don't know where I'd be. So, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the quirk of fate, that sort of was the key. And the mm. thing that I didn't realise, which, of course, they all know now with media, and that's why the Archibald Prize is so sought after, is it gives you notoriety. Yeah. Good or bad? Yeah. Well, actually, I realise that we've skipped over that major development. Mm. And that is the, because I forgot that it, it was actually when you were still at art school. I think it was in your first year at art school. Yeah. You won 19, the Sulman Prize. I think it was. Yeah, you were 19, the youngest mm. ever winner of the mm. Sulman Prize. Yeah. That, um, I, I'm surprised, actually, that you even entered it. Were, you, were, were people at art school encouraged to enter that? Well, no, I painted that picture in this awful fly-blowing room up at Cooler in the middle of summer. What was that experience like, winning the Sulman? Oh, it was, it was, it was, it was a little absurd, really. Um, well, I mean, you know, you become this person, this, but it, I didn't have a, a body of work. Mm. I didn't have... I didn't, hadn't formulated ideas, um, you know, so it was a bit of a... Um, Bit of a conundrum. It's not much you can talk about, really. No, I, 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 no, I had no idea. You're completely correct. But not to say that people weren't were unkind to me. They weren't mostly. Yeah. I mean, but um, it proved to me that it was possible. That's really what happened, I think. Right. Talking about travelling, we were talking about travelling before, and um, I think you tra travelled a bit with one of your great mentors, John Olson. Yeah, that From was later. That was later on, yeah. yeah. So w w that would have been, what, more in the 80s or something like yeah. that, was it? That oh, came, okay. that, that came through. Uh, John, John was uh, showed at the Australian Galleries in Melbourne. Mm. Um, and a guy who's dead for donkeys years ago called Charlie Brown, uh, Peter Brown was his name, he, he uh, after I'd had a show of the, the work I'd done in, in Europe, which was successful, thank goodness, they're not bad, um, some of them. Um, I can still sub subscribe to them. They should have been smaller. What were they? Oh, they sort of imagined desert landscapes, essentially. Yeah. I could have, I could paint them a hell of a lot better now, but the, I was onto it. And funnily enough, I think I got onto it because of John Ford's westerns. Oh, you know, right. not yeah. looking at uh, Degas, that sort of thing. Yeah. Of course, I, I look look in awe at all those things now, but. Whatever it was, it was finding a voice, I suppose, as they say. Mm. And so that's where I first met John. And um, yes, he, he, he was a great uh, help to me, a mm. guide. Mm. Um, I mean, I watched him very carefully, uh, yeah. you know, and what, what he was doing and things. Uh, the same with Brett Whiteley, who I met later, because we, mm. I bought a house next to, almost next door to him. Um, yeah, well, you lived in yeah in Lavender Bay in Sydney. Yeah, and Brett, uh, I, I I learned a lot out of from Brett. Not so much about work, but uh, he had a, a very curious way of thinking about things. I mean, a lot of it 
thought of it was, um, you know, fallacious. But um, when he was in good form, he was a very funny, entertaining guy, <laughs> Brett, you know. Well, um, I think Wendy widely said that that, you know, the group of, I think it was also Peter Kingston yeah, lived Kingley, nearby. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And that as, you know, you all um, lived a magical uh, life back then, sounded very bohemian. Um, no, I don't, well, I'd be a bohemian, I mean, God. She said No, I don't think it was bohemian. There was too no? there was no lazy people around, that's for damn sure. Well, I think she said there was lots of music into the night. Yeah, there was a fair bit of that. You know, you, you, well, everybody's young. Yeah. Mm. And what was it? Um, so you must have been uh, close to each other. Would you visit each other's studios and see what you were doing and oh, sure. talk that, about that, your work? Yes, that went on all the time, wandering back and forward, you know. Yeah. Depending what was going on. I mean, it was very busy. And Brett was very famous, you know. There was yeah. other people hanging around Brett. I, I never fell for that thing, really. But... Um, I, I admired Brett's ability, I'd have to say that. Uh, mm. And uh, on a good day, he was a terrific friend, mm. you know. And mm. I liked him, I liked him. But um, I, I liked him also because he was funny. People forget that. He was a very good mimic. Was he? And he could be outrageously funny when he wanted to be, you know. Yeah. A little bit of whiskey and orange juice and he'd light a room up with his jokes. But uh, <laughs> we sort of parted ways because of uh, his use of heroin. Really, mm, mm. it was a very sad thing. Mm. Well, I, I've read that uh, the police called you when he died. Yeah, yeah, um, and that was a very difficult thing. I mean, not not identifying him, but um, it was a very messy situation because he was divorced from Wendy, and I didn't know what to do with it really. I, so I contacted his sister. Mm. Maybe I could have handled it better, but whatever I did, I went down there and identified Brett so that they could proceed. That must and, have been um, shocking. No. What, no? No. No, I watched my mother die of cancer. That was shocking. Mm. But my Brett was... I'll tell you what was shocking. Um, he was in a, a, a green military body bag. That, that surprised me. He wasn't on a gurney with a white sheet. Mm. Um, and I, I took a clip of hair uh, for his sister. Um, funny enough, when I told Wendy, uh, she laughed at that. She said, oh, we've got a garbage bag of that. Because he, if you remember, he was using his own hair in some of his self-portraits. Oh, yeah. well, that was rather funny. But anyway, look, we all got over it. But yeah, um, yeah. Um, the shocking thing was that I didn't realise that a body, when it dies, that all the blood runs to the bottom. So right. one side of his face was purple. Yeah, right. And his forehead was cold. Yeah. It's all those sorts of things. Yeah. I just thought it was a damn shame. Yeah. Just a waste, terrible waste. Yeah, very, very sad. Yeah. I suppose people who, I mean, if you get involved with drugs like that, you either make it through or, you know. Well, it's one third to one third to one third. It's the same with alcohol. Mm. You know, there's one third of people die, one third of them sort of semi-recover and become functioning users and the other people get clean and get clear. Mm. Mm. And Wendy, to her great credit, she got clear. Mm. Not easy. No, I can imagine. Mm. Um, can we, let's, talk about, let's talk about your work now because I, I wanted to start off talking about landscape. Mm. Um, but I don't think I can talk about landscape your landscape work without talking about what's going on in the, in the landscape because it's it, you rarely depict a landscape as an identified place in itself in your work. You know, there's always... No, they're not. Uh, they're circa, to use the Latin, anywhere. Um, they're not... But they are a particular place for me. And so that's, it is a space. It's funny when, when you start working on these things and you're playing around with it to try and work out what it's going to do with you, you know, and get a focus on it and see how it works. Um, and it is as messy as that. You know, you're just trying mm. to get it to work, mm. to start. And there's a certain point, and every artist will tell you this, that uh, in the creation... Well, I'm talking about traditional artists, really. Uh, I think it probably applies to filmmakers, too. Um, look, it probably applies to musicians. I think it's... But there's a certain point when the art object that you're trying to create takes over and tells you how to do the rest of it. Mm. 
Mm. And um, that happens with me. There's a certain point when you realise that you've created a recognisable space. And then from then on, it's, you can finish it. Do you mean recognisable to you? Oh, yes, of course. Who else? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you mean a place that you've been to? No. Oh, so it's a place in your mind, mm. in your imagination. Yeah. Mm. So, it so the painting will develop and then it'll become that place. Yeah. It's always the same place. It's very limiting. <laughs> I've never painted a mountain. The, the closest thing I painted was, a, was a, uh, the Pyramid of Cheops. But see, that's man-made. I'm not particularly interested in uh, the natural world, except that I could paint for the rest of my life just painting clouds. Uh, they just intrigue me. Mm, I know. But I'm not talking about clouds I see. I'm talking about painting clouds. You know, it's a different thing. Mm. I want to talk about clouds a bit later on, but I was going to start... I wanted to first start to talk about um, something, a motif that you use that is you're very famous for and that recurs a lot in your work, and that is fire. Mm. And in particular, of course, burning ropes and, um, and sort of embers, smouldering embers. And uh, But I, it didn't start off... You, it, it had its origins in actually in installation and photography, didn't it? Yes, it did. But you've got to remember where I come from. You mentioned that there was no TV. Yeah. So I, I sort of refer to fire as Neolithic TV. It's a curious thing, but staring at a fire is a bit like watching TV. It mm. moves, it moves. And it, I think it has a very similar effect on people. But So I was just brought up with it for, you know, for six months of the year there was a Fire. All the cooking was done on Arga with log, log fires. Um, and we didn't have electricity off the mains for oh, a hell of a long time. There's a do, 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 old diesel that used to charge the batteries. Oh, yeah. Mm. So doing those pictures, it really was actually, they have resonance because my experience, they're not conjured in that sense, they're remembered. Yeah, right. Um, the conjuring has to do with using a bit of sash cord to sort of try and make the thing work. I didn't think that they would work as paintings, that's why I photographed it. Oh, so the, so you, you went to the country? I yeah. mean, I, well, I, we went, I always used to go to the same place. Uh, it's the Seven Mile Plain near, um, uh, near Brewarana. Yeah. And the, the thing about that is it's an old clay pad, there's no trees on it, there's nothing on it. So mm. you get this very pure horizon, which mm. is actually quite hard to find. Usually there's stubble or something around. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a fantastically peaceful sort of environment. And I went out with uh, Robert Walker, who's died, uh, a photographer, and um, um, photographed it on just a single lens reflex, a, a, a Pentax. Yeah, right. Mm. I just should describe what it is, just if people don't understand what we're talking about. It's, it was two posts, basically, with yeah. a rope hanging between it. Yeah. And then you set you set fire to the rope. Yeah, and then photographed it. And then yeah. photographed it, yeah. Mm. So it's, it's a strip, basically a string of fire. Mm. And I didn't I didn't realise, I wasn't even sure what I was really doing, quite frankly. Yeah, I, yeah. I, so just, so... It was a sort of a form, form of entertainment. Yeah. But it was certainly very effective. And it was a, a number of years later that I thought, how can you make a painting out of that? With painting flames and painting fire, mm. it's difficult to... I mean, I think what's so successful with the way you paint is that it's just... It, you've captured that um, experience of looking into a flame, which is not... It's very hard to literally interpret that when you're looking at a flame. I'm, I think what I'm trying to say is it's like painting water that's moving all the time. A flame is never still. No, that's very true. The, um, the key to it is to... I mean, for instance, that's why... I, uh, a photograph of a fire is sort of so ineffectual, really. It, it's because it's just frozen the thing. So you've got to be able to sort of allow it to have a bit of a type of movement, yeah. a frisson, if you like. And that, that involves all your skills that you can bring to bear on it. If you get too much red, it's ruined. If you get too much yellow, it's ruined. If you get one yellow, it's ruined. There's got to be two or three. Same with the reds. And there's got to be underpainting and there's got to be glazing. Yeah. And right. scumbling it. You've got everything you can manage. Yeah, I've read that you were saying you've got to have a cool and a warm red. Oh, yes, but the same applies to every colour. Every time, it doesn't matter what it is, you, if you use a cold and a warm blue or red or yellow, you get a, you'll get a, um, 
There used to be, Drysdale used it a lot, there used to be a, a sort of a technique that you have hot over cold or cold over hot, and what they talk about is the same thing, which is you, you, it causes the surface to be much more interesting visually. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about clouds. We talked about it earlier, we mentioned it, but they must be very, and you were saying they're all from your imagination, but they must be very useful to use in a painting. Because well, they're very, they, you can convey a tremendous amount of mood with the sky. I mean, look at Constable, look at the Dutch school. That's um, um, a curious thing, but Constable was a master of painting clouds. And there's a lot of his work, he just did cloud studies. Yeah. And. Um, in fact, painting clouds is a pretty modest idea in the, in the wider artistic world. It's a very dated idea because it's sheerly about aesthetics and mood. Mm. And if you look at the postmodernist landscape, there's two things that they don't like very much is aesthetics and mood. You think so? Well, it's very hard to politicise a cloud. <laughs> Do you also think beauty is less important to, to more recent attitudes? There's no doubt about that, yes, absolutely. Is that important to you? Uh, um, completely. It's a life-enhancing idea. Um, one of the great problems that came out of the brutality of Marxism is the downgrading of beauty. It was regarded as bourgeois and not useful to the proletariat, I suppose. But uh, no, no, uh, as a serious matter, I think uh, the creation of beauty, which is, seems to be lost in the contemporary world, um, You've only got to look at architecture, you've got to look at everything. Where brutalism is, is, is very wrong. I think it's a very, very bad thing. One of the paintings that I really love of yours is called The Grand Tumble. And it's, yeah. it's amazing because we are basically parachuting out of an aeroplane and seeing this aerial perspective um, hmm. uh, of the land and with the horizon sort of close to the top of the canvas. But what is happening in the foreground is that all these objects are literally tumbling mm. down in front of us. And it's a beautiful composition of clothing and um, lots of objects that you've used in, in past paintings. Yeah. yeah, which is just absolutely mm. fantastic. Um, you often use objects in your paintings which you've said have been symbolic. So things like, you know, a watch or mm. um, a flower. Mm. There's well, another one that I did earlier, which is the departure expected. It's all about the same thing. It's basically about memento mori, really. Yeah. Um, it's just I like the title of the grand title. It's sort of rather than going up, they go, he's coming down. Oh, I think it's... And they're all self-portraits in a sense. Of the, that yeah. jacket, it's this bloody jacket. I've had it for donkey's years. Oh, you know? is it right? Mm. Yeah, well, it's also the same sort of clothing that you've got in um, the history of Yes, it's Wayfair. pretentious old clothing. It's not, yeah. I mean, there's not a black T-shirt in it. No. <laughs> You know, I'm too well, old for that. Well, they're also, I mean, they're also beautiful clothes, so... Well, I try to... Well, I don't know about that, but again, clothes are very sentimental with people. And yeah. You can just, using clothes, create a figure. Well, that's right, and depending how... what the, I mean, in a lot of those um, paintings we're talking about, like, for example, the Impedimenta series, mm. which are like the histrionic wayfarer where, the, you know, the figure is carrying things on their back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they obviously, I mean, for anyone who isn't familiar with those paintings, it's, it doesn't have a figure in it. It's just the, the clothes are forming the, the shape of yeah, the figure. Yeah, it's curious you don't need a figure in a funny yeah. sort of way. Sort well, of... it's amazing how you can get a posture to convey so much. Yeah, well, it does. That's what it dances about. Well, and obvious, and we haven't mentioned that the histrionic wayfarer, which is the prime example of that, was your Archibald Prize winning um, mm. painting. And... Um, that must have been, I mean, you were a trustee of the Art Gallery of New South Wales, so you would have been involved in, in selecting the Archibald Prize in the 90s. Yeah. Um, how was, how did, was that experience for you when you actually won it? Well, I wasn't expecting to. No? No. Um, although, having said that, you don't enter it unless you want to win it. Yeah. But um, it's, a, it's a chook raffle. Yeah, uh, I was going to ask you about that. Is that... Uh, the, the, I know the decision-making process very well. And it's as good as you'll get, but it's a committee decision. Mm. And if there's no agreement, it can go wild, you see. So you don't really know. And it depends on the number of people on the board. Like, who are they? What's their experience? It, mm. The personalities play a big part in it. Yeah. So you don't really know. No. 
So just for people who don't know that, you know, maybe overseas listeners, it's the Archibald Prize is at the Art Gallery of New South Wales and a group of people who are, on the, who are on the board of trustees, they're the ones who decide who wins the prize. So it's... Uh, and they're not just artists. And, in fact... No, there's only two artists on the board. The rest of them are business people. Yeah. So it's a really interesting prize. Did you generally feel as though the right one was chosen when you were... each year when you were a trustee? Well, I mean, one always has a view uh, on that. And um, as a rule, uh, force of argument could come into it. Mm. Um, numbers come into it. It is a committee, so you're not always completely happy, and sometimes you're very unhappy. But as a rule, you, could, you know, yes, I think they made the right decisions. Mm. Mostly, mostly. Did people main? Uh, did people often look to you for your opinion because you're an artist? Yes. And also, I suppose you could have sort of analysed it. Well, yes, I mean, but then the force of argument comes into that, but you may may not win. Mm. You know, it, uh, it's a very it's a very tricky thing because, um, as you will know, when you're dealing with aesthetics, uh, everybody's got an opinion. Mm. Mm. Um, and a lot of the opinions that are put forward aren't particularly advised. So, for, I suppose. Sorry, go on. Force of argument really is very important if the decision is split. Yeah, and I suppose that argument has to be backed up with reasons. Yes, of course, and it can be with a trained person. And by the way, it's quite interesting. Um, you find quite often that a businessman or woman, um, and most of these people are pretty highly intelligent because of their career successes um, or getting to these places, mm. you find that quite often they can form a very good argument in support of what they believe about aesthetic matters. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, look, it's, what you're going to get me to say, which I don't particularly want to say, is that uh, it's imperfect. Mm. Well, I suppose judging any art prize is going to be imper an imperfect exercise. Well, it's uh, idiosyncratic. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. But and also I've heard you know, people say that they won't enter a particular art prize because the judge is not going to like their particular style of work. I mean, yeah, exactly. They're smart. <laughs> but don't you feel we know as though... That. We know that. Don't you feel as though you're going to be attracted to a painting that is more in line with your aesthetic preferences, you know? Or your... Maybe not your style of painting, but... No, I would say that's absolutely not the case in my, my position. I mean, um, when you take on a, a role like that, um, you're almost duty-bound to put in the back pocket what you might think, but it could also be prejudicial. So you, you have to take uh, what, what used to be called a Catholic view, which is a broad view, mm. um, and you have to maintain that. Otherwise, you're being unfair and prejudicial to a certain type of work. So what would you have been looking for when you were looking at paintings? That's very difficult. Well, paintings of high quality, essentially. Um, and a, 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 a very humanistic and interesting interpretation of the human face and figure, mm. I would say. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, see, it's, it's, it's already morphed away from what it was. It was a portrait prize for people, portraits of people who are highly respected in the arts, uh, science, politics and letters, basically, you know. Well, that mm. changed. Yeah, that's, there's that's a lot not of self-portraits and a lot of portraits mm. of artists. That's right. Now. I, but I think not that's to say that they more... can't be very good. No, but also I think it's just easier. And also, I mean, once well, you start painting a to... politician, I mean, I don't think anyone wants to paint a politician anymore. No. <laughs> No, I think is. that's true. Um, it, it sort of seems as though... Um, but there's going to be a reaction against the number of self-portraits. Yeah, I there think. are. I, I, do, I do agree with that. I think, that, I think last year was, there was a record number, but, um, yeah. So, well, artists always think they're important. But also, important. look, I think, I think the Archibald's always going to be around. I'm looking forward to the 100 years, actually, which is in two years' time, the 100-year anniversary. Yeah, so that'll be, that'll be fun. Maybe. I think, you know, and also the public love it, you know. 
Everybody loves going and... The quality's dropped dramatically. I believe that this last year, it was a fantastic opportunity for the trustees not to award it, to sharpen it up. They've done that before. Yeah, that was done once before, mm. wasn't it? Um, that's a bit harsh. Why? Because, I mean, I think the calibre is pretty good. I think the quality is pretty good. I mean, look, you're always going to get some that aren't, you know, that you sort of think, oh, gee, how did that get in? Although sometimes you go to the Salon de Refusé and you think, wow, that one didn't get in and, you know, it should have, you know. Well, you know, my position, I did a painting of Clay and Edwards. They didn't even hang it and yet it won the... the yeah, <laughs> the, the Doug Moran. Yeah. It doesn't have the same cachet uh, with the public, but um, they're should, delightful people to deal with. Very serious about what they're doing. Well, it's good having... I, I like the Doug Moran because I think it's good having another... Well, there's a lot of portrait prizes in, in, in Australia, um, but it's another significant portrait prize. Mm. But actually, that's... Uh, talking about portrait prizes and prizes in general... Um, even though portraiture is quite a minor part of your uh, life's work, mm. you've won, you know, the two major portrait, Australian portrait prizes plus the Packing Room Prize yeah. for your portrait of Barry Humphreys. Um, are you a bit surprised at that? Yeah, I suppose I am. Um, 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 although I'd have to say at my age, whether you win it or lose it doesn't mean much. You know, it means an enormous amount to young painters, but not at my stage of the career, and I've won these things, really. Yeah. Do, is being a finalist important to you? No, not at all. Do, what about the win prize? Because I know you've been finalist in that, I think, three times. Oh, they yeah. call it finalist. You mean they hung it? <laughs> yeah, they hung it. Should have won it. But then every artist says that. So it's just the Arcadian a... repose you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's great. That's a great. But mm. we talk about it on the video, so hopefully, mm. I'll, I'll, can have, people can have a look at that on the video. But um, well, can we? Let's talk about. Um, can we talk about commercial stuff? The commercial success or not? Do you well, want? If, not, you, if you want to. Do you not want to though? I think it's vulgar. Okay. They they don't ask. Um. Only because I watched this YouTube video, mm. Damien Hurst talking about how... But that's real money. Yeah, I know. I know it's a different kettle of fish, but anyway. No, let's not talk about it. It's, it is, it's not worth talking about. Um, so I wanted to talk... I, I wanted to I'm talk happy to, to you talk about it if you want to. They always do it. Do they? Do people talk about with you? Mm. Well, maybe we'll talk about that aspect of it. Will I raise it? Will I start it? people ask you about that? Well, they, to the uninformed, they're always curious, I suppose, but the first question is um, usually, um, um, you know, landscape. Are you landscape or portrait artist? Yeah. You know, that stuff and so yeah. forth. But anybody that comes, they say, they'll look at a picture and um, they say... How much, do you, how much do you charge for that? Mm, yeah. And you say, well, my dealer handles that. I say, oh, yeah. They will. how many do you do a year? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, here we go. Yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> yeah. No, I wasn't looking, thinking that aspect. I was thinking of the aspect because Damien Hurst was saying... Uh, because obviously he's very wealthy, but that the money money is very complex and that it's like he was saying it's sort of like love like it's very complicated because it should be able to enable you to do your work not be the motivating factor for your work what well, he's gone into the priesthood now has he <laughs> i can remember where i was when i realized you painted in acrylic and not oil I was at SH Urban Gallery at your survey show, oh. Elemental Reckoning, and I was in front of that painting, The Water Dance, which is that water, mm. underwater painting with the snake, mm. sea snake in it, and the, there's flowers floating in there that are merging mm. out of this water. It's upstairs. Oh, is in it? In the bedroom. Oh, yeah. right. It's, a, it's an amazing painting. And I remember staring at it and seeing these things sort of emerging out of from the canvas. And I went to look at the, you know, the 
sign, the plaque next to it, and to see what it was. And then I saw, saw it, it said acrylic on canvas, and I could not believe it. Wow. And that's when, and then I realised that you paint in acrylics. I mean, I don't know why I didn't know that before, but anyway. Well, most people can't tell because... You can't tell. Why should you be able to tell? It's only the medium, it's not the pigment, you see. The reason I think I was surprised was because I didn't think... I thought glazing was the, you know, was the domain of the oil painter, whereas it's clearly not. No, no, not at all, no. The other reason I like it, like Sidney Nolan liked uh, Rippolin. Uh, Rippolin was house paint. Yeah, right. Enamel, like enamel paint. Yeah. Yeah. He liked it because it was dull. And the thing about it was it suited the Australian landscape. And I found the same thing with acrylics. You don't need that gloss for Australian light. You just don't. Mm. And so acrylic sort of suits it better. It's it's curious also that uh, it's been an absolute game changer for Indigenous artists who have always worked with water and ochre. And, of course, with acrylics... They're working with water. Yeah. And so it has the same, a similar natural feel to their own colours. And so do you use a medium when you use, is, is it a glazing medium? Yes, I mean, there is such a thing. Well, I would have done the same thing with oil paint, but it would take me years. Yeah, exactly. You, you can't use glazes in oil paint like you can with acrylic. You you, as speed-wise, you mean? Not only that. What's the difference? Um, well, you can get all sorts of problems with, you know, overlay with oil paint, clogging and cracking and all sorts of things. Cracking's a big problem if you do too much glazing in oil paint. And you mm. don't have that problem in acrylics, no, obviously. you don't with acrylic. Yeah. You may have other problems, but... Uh, what other problems would you have? Well, I mean, the, the, you, you've got to understand that these... The stretches I use are world, absolutely world-class stretches. I mean, they're... They're made out, made, made out of the best timber and so forth. They're, they're, it's Belgian linen. And then it's primed uh, with rabbit skin glue and, and gesso. It's, it's the same as it has been done for hundreds of years. And how does that make a difference, do you think? Makes me feel better. <laughs> I believe that I'm making a product that will last. Yeah. You know. But, of course... Uh, it's like motor cars. Nobody worries about um, a motor car. You expect that it's going to have maintenance. It stands to reason. And people think that an art object doesn't need maintenance. Well, that's rubbish. It does. Mm. You know, it has to be cleaned correctly and kept in the right environment, all sorts of things. Yeah. Most of you find when uh, paintings are, are in trouble, it's usually the environment. Although these days they paint on just about anything, so it could be... You know, quality of the products. Yeah, right. And do you dilute your paint with water ever? I mean, I suppose to create a wash you would do that. You wouldn't always use medium? Oh, you have to. You, you, it's not a good idea to just use water. You can do a certain... But then otherwise you have to have a medium to bind it. Yeah, right. Otherwise it, um, it behaves like gouache. It, it, it's right. porous. Yeah, it's no good. You've got to put a bit of medium with it. Why are you asking me that? You're asking me from your point of view. What do you mean? A paint tip. <laughs> yeah, I want a paint tip. Is that is a paint tip? It, that's a paint tip, yes. Yeah. My listeners are going to love it. It's also... Uh, I had a painting of mine play up years ago that I painted in oil paint and I was using a, a glazing in that, but I wasn't even using gum turpentine. I used turpentine. And what happened was that the paint then came away. Now, I could repair it. That wasn't a problem, but I didn't. I'd forgot. I should. I should have put in either gum turpentine, but I should have been putting um, a, a glazing medium in there. But I didn't. Oh, okay. But it was okay. It wasn't a big problem. So I'm very alert to those sorts of things. You've got to keep a certain amount of medium. Water's okay on paper, but not on impasto. Also, with your. Um palette, with your colour mixing, um, do you keep notes or anything? No. <laughs> so you, you would just... Um, notes about what? The colour. Like say, well, you know, when, when I, I interviewed Natasha Bieniek, she's got this amazing... She uses oil paint, right? And she uses a disposable palette. And hmm. what she will do is she will... Um, so, you know, you can just rip it off the pad. And she would set out her colours and mix them every day and 
she would have them all lined up around the side, like around the edge, and then she would mix the colours in the middle so she, you could see how it was mixed, so you could see which colour went with which to mix the colour. Yeah, yeah. And then she'd keep that disposable sheet and put the name of the work on it yeah. so that she could remember what colour she used. I thought it was no, genius. No, she, no, no, that's not right. She remembers the colours she used. She can't remember how she made them correctly, right to that particular point. Yeah. I did well, I that. I've got, uh, uh, I'm, when I'm making the colours up, you know, say for a sky, yeah. I mix the colours and then I put them on paper to see if it works. So I keep all those. Oh, do you? Mm. And would you write next to it what the combination is? I wish I had. No, no, I don't need the combination. Oh, I wish I'd s- written on it uh, which picture it was for. Yeah. Which is what she's done. <laughs> it's a really good idea because she could get out... She did a portrait of Wendy Whiteley for the Archibald a few years ago and she could get the, that palette out and she had it there, you know. It was just fantastic. I think it's sentimental. I mean, she's obviously highly trained. She could do it without it. Well, you could do it. You, well, you can start from scratch again. Of course she does every time. sometimes it's a shortcut. Oh, it's a help. Well, it could be. I don't like, like the word shortcut. <laughs> but it's certainly a help if you know where you're starting from to go there, you know. I prefer not to know too much because it actually keeps you a bit fresh and alert. Mm. What you mean if you're starting a new painting? Yeah. You yeah. don't want to be... Start, a new, to, yeah. start a new painting. Yeah, know. yeah. But as John Olson says, I mean, all artists put themselves in jail. What, what, he, what he means by that is that all artists become adept at certain things. Yeah. And it's true. It's true, historically. And, um, what, and repeat them? Oh, yeah, but they're, they're always different. You know, they're, they're not always the same well, at all. Well, that's they're, right. They've got different angles to them. Some are better than others. But, you know. Yeah. You've produced a lot of very large paintings, uh, which, to me, would seem like would take a long time to do. So, in other words, what I'm getting at is you must have a long working day. What's yeah. your routine like? I remember, um, I can't remember exactly how long ago, but I remember the, the year uh, was when Sam Fulbrook won the Archibald Prize. Oh, yeah. So it was in the 80s and um, Olsen and Purvis and myself and a few other people were out at Lake Air and we picked up on a service station a copy of Pick's Post, and there's Sam, Sam's in there, and he's saying, um, they've interviewed him, and he's saying, um, well, being an artist is just like owning a corner store. You have your incomings and your outgoings, and it's pretty simple. And the the fact is that, um, you you know, you get up in the morning and you pull your pants on and go to work. Mm. I mean, just like a policeman, and hit, hit the stove. And so I did that at nine o'clock and I stayed there till about six or seven. Oh, right. Um, and you find that it's, you get into the flow pretty quickly? Oh, I break off occasionally and read. Yeah. Yeah. Energy's a different thing at 70 than it was at 30, but um, you've got to understand that, I mean, at 70 years old, uh, there's not much else to do. I don't play golf. Uh, my dad did. I used to play bad golf. Um, but so what else do you do? Yeah, well... You in... want a divorce? Try and talk to your wife for 12 hours. I mean, that doesn't work either. You've got to get out of the house. Oh, yeah, of course. And so I've got a fantastic studio up there and I can do what I like and so that's what I do. So in a way, it's not, it, it's not just your job. It's also your enjoyment. Of course. You're very lucky to have to your work being also... Yes, I believe I am lucky on that. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of older men um, in this district, uh, men that com- commanded companies and employed hundreds of people. What do they do when they retire? Mm. I'm not probably glad to do it, but, you know, nothing like work to keep you going. Well, that's right. Mm. And it's a serious business, in my Well, view. it is for me. Uh, Look, I've been doing it so long now, I can't imagine not doing it. In fact, if I don't do it, I feel very insecure. I get quite neurotic. Mm. Um, uh, What does one say about that? I don't know. Mm. But I've done that all my life. I mean, the the work ethic, the imperative work ethic, really. Mm. And that came from family, I suppose. But 
um, imperative. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are stories about Montmartre uh, in, say, 1911, when Picasso was at the Bateau de Loire, where his studio was, and, um, you know, they'd all go out um, getting drunk and they'd come home and the, the small hours, the Picasso's lights are on, he's working. Yeah. But he, he was a, an owl, you see, there's owls and fowls. And um, um, so he, he worked into the late hours. He didn't get up till, he's a bit like Churchill, he got up quite late. Yeah, right. And then gradually moved in, but he worked very late. But he was a, a, a manic, manic worker, that's all he did. Yeah, yeah, he was mm. driven. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, I can imagine it's probably, you know, a place you really want to be. Well, yeah. Your studio. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, also, in a few weeks' time... That's but the thing weeks. about Picasso, it's really interesting. Sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. there's a thing about him that um, it's interesting. If, if, From my perspective, and it's a personal view, there's a naughtiness and a gamesmanship about Picasso. There's a cynicism in a funny sort of way about his work but that you don't get in Braque. You know, in Braque you can you can smell the ethnicity of his Frenchness and the colours that he used and the modesty with which his compositions are composed. Um, but when you look at Picasso, there's a game going on. In what way? What do you mean? Well, I think he, uh, he might have learned something from Duchamp in the sense that they'll almost accept anything he does, and they did, and well, you they think did. He, you think he was sort of having he, the last laugh in a way? No doubt. Yeah? No doubt. Well, he certainly was prolific, that's for sure. Well, he dated every work too, to the day. Every work, every damn one, which is genius because, of course, it's made his archiving um, foolproof, really. Yeah, yeah, that's true, mm. yeah. And so a forgery, a bit tricky. Bottom right-hand corner of the date. Well, he really lived, like, he's one of those artists that just lived it every minute of the day. That's how you felt about him, you mm. know. Uh, and also it came, for, came before everything else, I think. Well, he, he was a very, very shrewd bastard, you know. He, he was no monkey. Uh, he really knew what he was up to. And mm. he, he rarely left anything on con consignment. He did, you know, how much do you want? Yeah, you know, right. give me that much. Yeah. And there's a story about Picasso that some guy said, well, he objected to the price. And so Picasso just doubled the price. <laughs> no, I admire him for that. Mm. <laughs> well, that's the other thing. Well, how do you price a work? I mean, gosh. Well, exactly. You know, it's sort of mm. so interesting. What's uh, the price of anything? Well, the price of a piece of art has got to do with its value to a certain person, hasn't That's it? right. And you hope there's a lot of people who like it. Yeah, well, I've been fortunate like that, I suppose. Yeah, so, well, as I was saying, yeah, in a few weeks, Sydney Contemporary's rolling along mm. in Sydney and um, you'll be... Australian galleries are exhibiting you exclusively, apart from some works on paper that I think that they're, they're exhibiting as well, but as, as they did last year, um, so obviously... How do you think that worked? What do you mean? On a person, me personally. Yeah, I think it was great. Yeah, obviously a lot of galleries represent well, a few people, but I like it when one artist. You've got to be able to afford to do it. Well, say. that's right. It's expensive mm. for the galleries as well. Well, um, so you're working on works at the moment for that show, mm. um, and I think we saw some in the studio. They look fantastic. I can't wait to see to see them there. Um, so good luck with the preparation for the for Sydney Contemporary and thank you so much for your time today, Tim. I've really enjoyed it. Oh yeah. Okay. I enjoyed it too. What a great artist. I had such a fun afternoon. I hope you enjoyed hearing Tim Storia tell his story. 
If you're in Sydney, get to Sydney Contemporary, which opens on 12 September 2019. You're in for a treat at the Australian Galleries booth. As I said in the intro, I'll be getting a video of Tim at his home and studio onto the YouTube channel in a few days, so watch out for that. You can also subscribe to the YouTube channel for free, as well as to the podcast, of course, so that you easily get all the latest videos and podcast episodes. If you don't know how to do that, just ask a teenager. The show is also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Thanks again to all of you who have taken the time to rate and review on iTunes. It's so helpful to get the podcast out to more people. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters. This is a question I ask a lot of artists I interview, is whether they use black straight from the tube. Would you ever use black? I yeah. notice it's on your palette. No, I use, um, I use Payne's Grey. Um, I, whenever I use black, I don't think I very rarely use it at all. Oh, right. So pa- Payne's, Payne's Grey has got blue in it, so you could actually, with a couple of layers of it, at a glaze, you could go as deep as you want. Yeah, right. And quite often I mix, uh, if I wanted to smoke it up, I put... Um, I put a bit of burnt sienna with it, that just to warm it. Oh, okay. But it's as black as you want. Yeah, right. Well, that's right. When black can be a terrible you... killer. You've got to be mm. very careful with black. Yeah. So you wouldn't see yourself using it very often. No, almost never. <laughs> <laughs>